0: In your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12, there may not be a hymn, I think, that is more suitable for the study of the Revelation than the one we just read, recognizing that really, you know, over and against kind of the way it's been built popularly in our culture, the Revelation really is about the preservation of that church as it was beginning in that New Covenant era, so when we sing that hymn, I think it really applies very appropriately, to what we're studying in the Revelation, and that is God preserving His church in the midst of toil and tribulation. And when we talk about God preserving His church, uh, we have to understand that the church is made up of individuals, so it's the preserving not only of the church corporately, but the preserving of the individuals within the church as well. I mean, there is no corporate preserving without the individual uh, preserving of you and me and those of us who, who call upon His name. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 of Revelation, chapter 12. Hear now the word of God. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we look at this very dramatic language, this very symbolic language, yet at the same time, it is telling us of unseen things, of invisible things, of that, of that invisible reality by which we find ourselves surrounded. And so, Father, we do pray that we would recognize and take comfort in the preservation of your church let us not think that it is an odd thing that if we find ourselves persecuted and oppressed. That, let us not think it an odd thing that we are in the midst of a battle. But at the same time, let us take great comfort in knowing that that battle is won ultimately and fully by the blood of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last time we spoke of how that war in heaven that we saw in the earlier portion of this chapter accomplished what World War I did not accomplish, which was a war to end all wars. We studied last week how, in fact, that war, that battle, was victorious. What World War I did do, we talked a little bit about again last week, was produce an environment that made Europe ripe for World War II. That's kind of what happened with the way things ended with the Versailles Treaty and all those types of things. Being in the midst in the 30s, of a depression. The United States was very hesitant to enter World War II, yet yet they finally did. And we sent our, we sent our young people off to Europe and to the, to the Pacific. Now, the hottest place in any war, the hottest place in any conflict is called the front. That is where the opposing lines meet, the front. Now, For us, for the Christian, if you were to ask, well, what is the front for the Christian? What is the hottest place of conflict for the Christian? I would say that the hottest place for the Christian is that which is the front between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In other words, the hottest place of confrontation, where the victory must be won, is between Christ and between the devil and his darkness. That is where the victory is either won or lost. As David said... The battle is the Lord's. And if we enter into this idea of spiritual battle, without a recognition of that, we have lost indeed. But there is great victory in the captain of our salvation, who is Christ, who has won that victory on our behalf. Now, that does not mean that there is still not a battle to be won and fought throughout the course of history. Going back to my little illustration in terms of wartime, in the 1940s, and I was, you can save the jokes, I wasn't yet born even in the 40s, <laughs> but right after the 40s. America was quite a different place than it is today. Our soldiers were on a literal front, and so they're out there fighting. But then there was another thing that we really don't see very much today in our conflicts. And it was called the home front, or the front at home. Now, there was this general feel in the nation in terms of what was wrong and right. We were much more in agreement in that era. And there's also a general agreement at that time in history that what was happening in Europe and in the Pacific were, were evil. Those were evil things taking place. Also, there was this general feel that if we enter into that, we'll win. We're going to help win those battles. But in order for that to be achieved, there had to be efforts, not just there, not just overseas, there had to be efforts at home. And we saw that was something that was very built by, by our nation. There had to be sacrifices that we would make here in terms of food. We had to make sacrifices here in terms of natural resources. They they needed metals, for example, for, for weapons. And so you had to make sacrifices here in order for the weapons to be made there. There had to be sacrifices in terms of employment. People had to do jobs they wouldn't normally do because there was nobody to do them because they were off fighting and we had to somehow provide for our soldiers. There were things like care packages and letters and things that people here would write to encourage the soldiers. And even Hollywood, as amazing as this seems, got behind it. If you look at the movies made in the 40s, it was like pro-America type movies, as opposed to what we started seeing later on. So you have this nationwide effort in terms of this battle that is taking place. Now, why am I mentioning this? I open with this that we might begin to appreciate that the advancement of the gospel, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, this great effort that we have been called to, to engage in the world in such a way that the the glory and the righteousness of God will cover the earth, as the waters cover the sea, that is the commission that we've been given, is not just a job for pastors, or elders, or deacons, or those who have an official post. Now, I recognize that ultimately that battle is won by Christ. So even the elders, even the pastors... They're, they're really part of the home front. They're not the front lines. They're, we're all part of the home front. Christ and Christ alone was on the front line and won that battle. Nonetheless, what we have to realize when we read a passage like this, and I hope I can make this clear to you, when it talks about, quote, the woman or the rest of her offspring, and you might go, well, who are those? And I'm going to explain who I think those are, because I think what he's talking about is the church, All of them are involved in this battle. All of them are going to find themselves under some form of persecution. All of them are going to find themselves under some form of oppression. This this dragon, this serpent, is aiming his crosshairs at the woman. We're going to find he's not finding success there. Then he's going to go to the rest of her offspring. And that includes everybody. It's not as if he's just going after pastors or just going after Elders or deacons or worship team leaders. It's entire communities of people that are affected by the efforts of darkness. And so when we read this, we have to recognize we're all part of this prophecy. We're all part of this passage. Now, when the dragon saw, verse 13, that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the child. It really means the male. It's one word, but it's male child who had been Christ. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So just to catch up on where we're at in this passage, having failed, if you remember correctly, this this fiery red dragon is going to try to kill Jesus the moment he's born, he fails. He fails really during the course of his whole life, and even though he thought he succeeded when Christ died on the cross, the resurrection was sadly disappointing to the devil, for he came back to life. So having failed against Christ, and having been cast out of heaven, and we talked about that last week, the the devil now turns to Christ's body, the church. The establishment, friends, of the early church would be tempestuous. This, The beginning, the birth of the early church, the new covenant church, was going to be something that would be full of tribulation. And they needed to know. And we need to kind of recognize this ourselves, that even though and this is most important, that we have our names recorded in heaven by the blood of Christ. Even though we know that, and we should take comfort in that, if by grace you've called upon the name of Christ through faith, that eternally God owns you, he's adopted you, and you belong to him. But you also need to know this. You're in the middle of a battle. you got to know that. you got to understand, and he's writing this, so that they would not think, wow, what's going on here? I thought it was going to be easy. He's like, no, it's not going to be easy. There's still going to be a battle. The battle will rage. Now, the specific object of the dragon's persecution is the woman who gave birth to the child. Now, again, we talked about that earlier. And we're going to see the woman who gave birth to the child distinguished, obviously, from the rest of her offspring, from verse 17. Well, who is he talking about here? I would argue that the woman here who gave birth to the child is predominantly the faithful Old Covenant Jewish Christian. You realize that the very first Christians were predominantly Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. And the gospel went, as Paul wrote, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So this was the order. And so this woman who gave birth to Christ was Old Testament Israel. And the faithful woman were those Old Testament Israelites who, when confronted with Christ, obeyed Christ and followed and believed in Christ. They were the first Christians. And... The reason I say that they were faithful is because, we're going to see here in a second, the the wings of an eagle. Okay, They're delivered by the wings of an eagle. And and what happened there? Because those who disregarded the teaching of Christ in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Olivet Discourse, when when he told them, hot times are coming, so you need to obey my word, those who obeyed Christ found that they had been delivered. Let's understand the historical context here. I would argue that the wrath of the dragon would be the Roman armies that were going to come in and destroy the temple and kill a million Jews, which which is historically what we know happened. But what do we read actually in the Bible? Let's be reminded what Jesus taught And again, he taught in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I'm just going to quote Luke here, 21 verses 20 and 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, and those armies would... Who would be the armies in the first century? Rome. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains... And let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. In other words, get out of Dodge. So Jesus is preaching this sermon. If you're sitting there on the Mount of Olives and you're hearing Jesus say, when you see us surrounded by armies, head for the hills. What would be the natural application of that? When you saw the armies of Rome, what would you do? If you really believe Jesus, what you would do is head for the hills, which history tells us is exactly what happened, specifically Pella. They went up to the hills of Pella. And also we learn historically, of course, this is what I'm reading is from the text, but what we do learn historically is that at that fall of Jerusalem, when the Roman armies came and destroyed the temple, a million Jews were killed, but not one Jew who was a Christian, was killed. They were all saved from that siege. That deliverance is here referred to as having been given the wings of a great eagle. That's the way it's referred to here. Jesus preached, they obeyed, and God refers to that as, I'm going to deliver you on the wings of a great eagle. Now, in a second here, in a second here, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you what has become very popular today, in terms of what this event is, and then I'm gonna and I'm gonna tell you. I've already been telling you what I think it is, but what you're also I think gonna learn here is why why we disagree. What is it? You ever wonder why two people who have Bibles and believe them? And I, I went to five different seminaries who were that were of all different theologians, they were all Christian but they were all different kind of theological persuasions. And every one of my professors I admired. And they had Bibles in their hands. And they were seeking to be faithful. They weren't being nefarious. They weren't trying to get away with something. But why would they disagree? You ever wonder that? Why do people who seem to be sincere Bible teachers disagree? I'm going to show you in a minute why that happens. This language of being delivered by the wings of an eagle is taken from the Exodus. Exodus 19:4 and you know the story of Exodus, right, where the Israelites are delivered from slavery. Well, this is the way God puts it. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So you get you get the idea here of the way God is using the language of an eagle. Because if you read the Exodus, there are no eagles Right? They walked out. The God split the Red Sea, and then the sea came down upon the Egyptians. But they walked out. They had to obey Moses and walk out of there. Why do we have disagreement? As I was studying this passage, and this is the current majority report. It's not historically the majority report, but it's what you're going to see if you go into a Christian bookstore is that this is very likely the U.S. 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean in the yet future. Because the U.S. 6th Fleet has an eagle on its emblem. All right, so that, that's... And now you're going, okay, well, that, and now that's why these guys disagree. They disagree because... One is going to Exodus and going, how does the Bible use the idea or the imagery or the symbolism of an eagle? And the other person is kind of opening the newspaper and going, where is an emblem of an eagle? So it's a matter of whether or not you're going to allow scripture to interpret scripture or are you going to allow the newspaper to interpret scripture? So that's one of the reasons why we kind of shoot off in different directions. Because when you see the eagle used symbolically in your Bible, you know what you need to do? You need to go in your Bible and begin to examine where is the eagle used elsewhere and how in order for you to understand how it's used here. The point here is, though, getting back to the text, that the early church needed to know and I hope we're all ready for this, that there were rough waters ahead. There were were going to be difficulties. Jesus taught this. I hope you're not stunned by the idea that things may get difficult. He taught it many times. I'll give you just one example in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They also will persecute you. Did they persecute him? Yes. He's kind of going, look at, you know, what you saw happen to me, plan on it happening to you. Friends, we need to recognize this, lest we be caught off guard. Lest we kind of, you know, as Peter would say, like, don't think to yourself, what in the world is happening here? You know, this fiery trial that you're about to go through recognize that it's going to be there, recognize that it's part of the, the program for those who are going to battle for what is good and right and true. We have to recognize that the posture of the world is inclined to be taken against the church. you, you got to recognize. I don't, I don't think we should be hunting for that. I don't think we should be like going, well, the... The, the world's not mad enough at me, so what can I do to get it madder at me? You know, I think it was Spurgeon who said the gospel's offensive enough without you adding to it. You know, if you're, if you're not the, you know, ruining the family dinner, you're not being a good Christian or something. I mean, we should, as far as possible, be at peace with all men. Nonetheless, we also have to recognize this, that if you stand up for that which is good and right and true, you can expect there to be an antagonist. So far from us, peacefully coexisting in some equitable common kingdom which has become very popular this in this era with the unbelieving world that god is kind of going no this this common kingdom that god is ruling through general revelation and man being made in the image of god they'll be fine no the bible does not teach that the bible teaches that as the kingdoms of this world grow they're going to have an An antipathy toward the kingdom of God, and you need to be ready to lovingly, boldly, and uncompromisingly engage in that antagonism. You don't want to have a retaliatory spirit, you want to have a loving spirit, but you don't want to shrink back either. You need to be bold. I mean, those are tricky waters, right? Because you know how it feels when somebody attacks you. What do you want to do? Attack back. And we need to learn how to engage in a very loving manner with a kind of an equanimity of spirit rather than, you know, attack back mentality. Sometimes, you know, you're going to feel like retaliating. And, um, you know, I just know sometimes for me when I feel like retaliating, I make an effort at doing just the opposite of what I feel like doing at that moment and then um, try to enjoy the response of the person who is expecting me to retaliate, <laughs> rather than going down that road that becomes really unfruitful, right, and counterproductive. Well, at this juncture in Revelation, and I'm going to use language here that some of you will know and some of you may not, but I have a responsibility, I feel, to teach it, over and against the futurist view that this has not happened yet, which is kind of the more popular view today, and over against the idealist on millennial view that this is speaking of the entire church age, this is an entire thousands of year period, what we're reading here is that the Jewish believer in this historical context is going to be nourished, which basically means they're going to be taken care of, right? I'm going to put you on the wings of an eagle. When the heat comes, I'm going to, you're going to go to the hills of Judea. Most of them went to Pella. For how long? A time and times and half a time. Could it be, could it be any less clear? In our home group, we were talking about why the revelation of all the books really in the New Testament, you see in the Old Testament and Ezekiel and portions of Isaiah, you see this kind of language that just seems very apocalyptic and, you know, but not really in the New Testament. You see the Gospels and you see the history of the church and you see the, you know, Romans and Corinthians, you know, letters to churches, but it's only in the revelation. And I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. I think that the reason it's so cryptic is because it's really speaking of what Rome is going to do. We're really going to get to that. And I would argue that the beast is going to be the Roman Empire, specifically probably Nero at the time. But this letter is being delivered in Asia Minor on a Roman postal route. So these seven churches are on a Roman postal route, and Rome is in charge. And if Roman soldiers were to find this letter and read it, and it was very clear to them that Nero was being referred to as a beast, it would not go well for those churches. And so the cryptic language of the Revelation is very likely by design, because unless you really understood the Old Testament, you're not going to understand the Revelation. And I would argue that most people today, even with the Old Testament, who go to churches still have a hard time understanding the Revelation. So we've got this letter going out in this language, and here we have this. Time, times, and half a time. What is that? Well, we first see that in Daniel, chapter 12, verse 7. We also see it two other times in Revelation, but it's not called time, times and half a time. It's called 42 months or 1,260 days. Well, here, time would be a year. Times would be two years. Half a time would be a half a year. So all three of those would be What? Three and a half years. I think it makes sense. That's three and a half years. It's not, and I would argue that it's not the future tribulation, otherwise it would make no sense to the reader. It would be entirely insignificant to those seven churches if it was talking about the end of the world. I don't think it's the entire church age, which my all-millennial brothers believe, because it's three and a half years. Later in Revelation... The entire church age, according to the all-millennial and post-millennial view, again, I know these terms are tough, is a 1,000 years. So is it a 1,000 years or three and a half years? So it's got to be some short period of time, three and a half years. I think the most straightforward and easiest way to understand this was the fact that the Jewish war, which I just spoke of, where the Roman armies came in and destroyed the temple, lasted guess how long? Three and a half years. I think think that seems to me to be the obvious application of that three-and-a-half-year period. Well, I've offered this many times, and I'll say it again, that we need to read the Revelation and try to understand it the way the original recipients would have understood it. And then, when we find ourselves in similar situations, we respond faithfully the way they were called to respond. But that doesn't mean this was not a unique historical event at the beginning of the church. The beginning of the church was going to be, as I said, tempestuous. And they needed to understand that. And there was going to be a three and a half year period, period where things were going to get very, very difficult. Well, what we're reading in this passage is that you have this, 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 the devil cast out of heaven... And the, the way the language unfolds here is, and he's really, really angry. You ever notice, you ever wonder why when you're reading your New Testament, there seems to be demon possession everywhere? I, I, I've argued this, and I will argue it again, that during the time of Christ, the, the covenant people of God had become about as evil as you could be. I think Jesus taught that. Jesus Jesus, speaking to the religious community of his time, said that it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for you. I mean, how dark. He said to the people in his generation that all of the blood, all of the vengeance from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, is going to fall upon what? This generation. They had bec- the, 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 the promise of God was kept. Jesus came. And what did the covenant people of God do? They killed him. Right? The, the, the very righteousness of God in their midst became a stumbling stone to them. And so we need to understand the context of the turbulent nature of the beginning of the New Covenant Church. So the serpent, we read in verses 15 and 16, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. Right? He is coming after them that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So having been cast down, the dragon is now referred to, interestingly enough, as the serpent. I mean, a lot could be said about that, right? I mean, we read of the serpent in Genesis. The liar, right? the deceiver. And this great wrath, which we read of in verse 12, is now described as the serpent spewing water out of his mouth like a flood. So you get this imagery, right? You mean this picture that the serpent is opening his mouth and he's going to attack with a great flood the woman who are the the faithful Israelite. So we're kind of like, He's rehearsing now what he had said earlier. And the nourishing of the predominantly Jewish Christian here is described as the earth opening its mouth and swallowing up the flood. So you kind of get the picture here. I mean, you got the devil. He's kicked out of heaven. He turns upon the Jewish believer and a flood is coming out of his mouth to destroy them. But they are carried away, as it were, and he, by the wings of an eagle. Here, the idea is that God, by his providence, swallowed up that flood. We have noticed, throughout the course of our study of Revelation, that the same kind of language in the Old Testament that is used to describe the enemy of God's people is used in Revelation to describe the Jewish church. For example... Um, Jericho, Jericho was a nation that was an enemy of Israel and the trumpets were blown against Jericho, right? And the walls came down. But in Revelation, the trumpets are blown against the synagogue of Satan, which at that time it was the Jewish church. So you've got this kind of reversal here that that the antagonist of God's people are now are now being protected. So we have this example here, the flood. What is that? What's the imagery there? See, what you have is you've got this flood reminiscent of the the Red Sea. And now the New Covenant Church, which extends to us, is being protected the way the Israelites were protected from the flood. Now, let's not lose, I think, the powerful, intimate imagery here of the swallowing up of the flood. I mean, I I don't know how much you know about world religions, and tonight in the class, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. You know, why is Christianity different than all other religions? But so many religions have a God who is very distant, indifferent, detached. You know, the, the God who is out there. I mean, very interestingly enough, when Jesus was asked how to pray, right, and, and he offered the Lord's Prayer, in the opening line, he delivers something that is just massive, but we don't generally see it. And he says, pray this way, our Father, who art in heaven. We've said it, many of us, hundreds, thousands of times, but we don't think much about that. But contained in that one line, our Father, which art in heaven, contains both the intimacy of God in our midst as our Father and the transcendence of God who's in heaven. In one phrase, you have the God who is out there, at the same time the God who is right here. And that's something very unique to the Christian faith, that God does not lose his transcendence. He does not lose, if you will, his otherness, while at the same time calling upon the most intimate of human relationships, that is the family, the father of the household. We see the same language of swallowing in, uh, refer, in reference to death, that we have a God who takes upon himself and takes within himself the, the poison of this sin-laden creation. I just think it's a beautiful passage in Isaiah 25, 8 and 9. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. We'll see this language later in Revelation, the idea of wiping our tears away. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I've stated numerous times that the theme of Revelation is the triumph of Christ over all evil. It is, it is the preservation of his body, of his church. Friends, neither floods nor persecutions nor death itself can stay the hand of God. The, the, the intimacy there the warmth there, the advocacy there is something that we take refuge in. That is why in Revelation, one of the themes we see over and over is keep the faith. I know it's going to be tough here. Things may not go the way you want them to go. If you have not yet, someday you're going to get very, very, very bad news. That is to be expected. Keep the faith. Finish the race. Stay the course. That's what these seven churches are being told to do. Don't think it's odd that you get bad news. Don't think it's odd that Antipas, your brother, was martyred. Don't think it's odd that there are difficult things by which you are surrounded Know that that is what takes place. And don't love your life even unto death, because there is an eternal life that belongs to you where you will praise God forever and ever. And we can't read the Revelation apart from that understanding of that great victory. Now, in order for Revelation to continue to make sense, we have to recognize, I think, the historical uniqueness of the situation. Now, if you remember, Correctly, we ended last time with me going, okay, we're going to address this phrase short time. Remember? I ended with that and I didn't explain it. What is this short time? The devil knows he has a short time. That's in verse 12. I don't know about you, when I read something like that in the Bible, I'm like, what? Short time? Because this is written 2,000 years ago, and he seems to be hanging in there. By what definition is a short time 2,000 years? So what does that short time mean? I'm going to submit to you that the short time cannot be referring to the entire New Covenant era. The short time cannot be 2,000 years My wife likes to get places on time. I don't mind being a little late, unless it's a movie or a play or, you know, you got, you know. But if I told her, I'll be there in a short time, and she had to wait 2,000 years, that doesn't work, right? It just doesn't seem to fit. I don't think the short time can be the entire New Covenant era. And as I said earlier, I don't think the short time is the beginning of the tribulation because that would make this entirely insignificant to the ones who got the letter. Not to mention the fact that they've been told numerous times that what they're about to engage in will shortly take place. They've been told more than once, what I'm writing to you is about to happen. So the idea that it's yet future for thousands of years violates the context of the Revelation. Well, I think it makes much more sense to understand this short time as referring to the devil's very intense effort at stamping out the church before it is forever established. I think that's what he's saying. By the word and spirit, by the by the power and the grace of God, the church was if I could put it this way, was getting legs. And it was going to be established as a global entity. The Apostle Paul would say things like, I praise God that your faith is being proclaimed in the whole world. It's this idea that it's moving out. It's going beyond that initial effort by the devil to stamp it out. The devil had won over the old covenant. That old covenant church twice in Revelation, is referred to as a synagogue of what? Synagogue of Satan. So the devil had won the church over and he's setting his sight on either stamping out or winning the new covenant church over. And what I think we're reading here is he's got about one generation to pull that off. Now you're like, well what do you mean one generation? Is there anything in the Bible that would support that position? And I think that if you get this in the back of your mind and you start rereading your especially New Testament you're going to go ah that begins to make sense let me give you just a couple of examples Matthew 16:28 assuredly I say to you there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom okay so what's he talking about there there are some of you who will not taste death. Is that, you think that? Some people say, well, that's the, um, um, what's the event with? Transfiguration. The transfiguration. Thank you. The transfiguration. Because that happened just the next week. Why don't I think that's talking about the transfiguration? Because it's happening next week. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, you know, next week we're going to get into Revelation. Chapter thirteen, and some of you will still be alive. You'd be like, well, "What?" I think pretty much all of us are, will still be, but Jesus is saying some of you will not taste death. But if I said, you know, in forty years, we're going to, you know, finish our uh, our building program, and some of us aren't going to be here, but some of you will, I'd say that's what Jesus is talking about. I, th- I think he's what he's basically saying is. He is coming in judgment. That judgment of the temple is Jesus coming. And that destruction of the temple puts to death the efforts of the devil to somehow stamp out the early church. I think Paul, writing to the church at Rome, put it this way. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. When? Shortly. So this idea that the church is being threatened, being vanquished by the devil, was coming to an end, and the devil knew it. And he's doing everything he can to destroy it, but it's only going to be a short time. Well, now we see, since the devil is kind of aware of the fact that he's lost this battle against the Jewish believer, turns his crosshairs elsewhere. That last verse. And the dragon was enraged with a woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So now he's gone after the Jewish believer. He's failed. Now he's kind of going, well, I'm going to go after her offspring. Who's the offspring? I think the offspring must refer to the international church made of Jew and Gentile. The, the, the church which you and I are still part of they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Just a side note here, and a lot could be said about this, and that is this, that you'll go to churches today that really downplay the need for the Christian to obey the commandments of God. But here, the faithful church is described as those who do what? Keep the commandments of God. And I'm not against sharing our testimony. When we have meet with potential new members, we ask them to share their testimony. But you know what's more important than your testimony? The testimony of Christ. That must be front and center in terms of what makes a church a church. The testimony of Christ and the commandments are, even as we asked in the questions today, and that is, do you believe in Jesus as your Savior, and do you believe in Jesus as your Lord? Well, all of this is going to shoot us into chapters 13 through 18, where the antagonist now is kind of moved, right? He's like going, well, I failed here. Now I'm going to go after these people. And I'm going to argue that that is going to be Rome still attacking the church, and we'll get to that when we we get there. But here's something I just want to finish with. I think what we're seeing here is that the kingdom of God as it's expressed in the visible church, is protected by God, and it will grow and grow and grow. There's one other kingdom that the Bible talks about. Jesus called it the kingdom of Satan. And that kingdom will ever diminish because it is a house divided. I mean, you see it even now, right? You see movements of people who are engaged in something very ungodly, and they kind of partner up with other people but then down the road there's something else that they can't agree on and then they, you know, they, they crumble in upon themselves. There's not the kind of unity that the people of God are called to have because there's no basis for the unity other than what I feel like doing at any given time. But the kingdom of God established by word and sacrament, by these ordinary means of grace that we read of today, is a kingdom that will endure forever and ever and we are to engage in that ourselves. Let's enjoy John Calvin's take on this. He wrote, When Christ commanded that his gospel should be preached, he did not at all attempt a matter of doubtful result, but foresaw the approaching ruin of Satan. Now, since the Son of God cannot be deceived, and this exercise of his foresight relates to the whole course of the gospel, we have no reason to doubt that whenever he raises up faithful teachers, he will crown their labor with prosperous success. Jesus, speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit and his own physical absence, talks about that ministry. I'm going to finish by reading this. Just keep in mind this. In verse 11, which will be the last verse that I'm going to read, we will see once again that Satan has been deposed, that he, his ability to to deceive, his ability to accuse, we'll see again here that he is a defeated enemy. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist, but he is a defeated enemy. Jesus says in John 16, 7-11, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And finally, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize and rejoice and praise your holy name that the true front lines is the front line in that holy of holies where Jesus, our risen Savior, presents his blood as an expiation for our sins. That great victory that belongs to all who call upon his name for truly the battle is the Lord's. But Father, we do pray that at the same time we would not slumber or sleep, that we would recognize we are called ourselves to a battle, a battle for the souls of men and women. Help us to be faithful in that battle. Help us to engage with that spiritual armament that you've given to us, love and truth and faith and faithfulness and the word of God and prayer. We do pray, Father, that we would rejoice that you have allowed us to be part of what you are doing in this world. and We do thank you, Father, that you guarantee the success of the gospel